You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Welcome back to Mining Stock Education. I am your host, Bill Powers. Today, we're joined by Dan Oliver of Mirmacan Capital. He is an Austrian economist as well as a gold stock fund manager. Dan, welcome back onto the show. And uh, as gold investors, we're always paying attention to what the Federal Reserve is doing. And my question for you is, some have said the Fed's decision is simply, do we crash stocks or do we crash the dollar? Would you summarize it as succinctly as that? I, I don't quite like that, but I like that. But first, I'm going to go back and say to your introduction of me to Austrian economist, I'm not sure you can get a degree in that. You know, I went to all the fancy schools. They taught me Keynes. I didn't know about uh, Hayek and Mises and those things. So I found it my own. So, so anyone can be an Austrian economist. So they sit down and read a few books. And, and that's the magic of it. It's a very simple system. Obviously, like any system, you can get more complex as you get into it. But the outlines are, are very simple. And, and, and to go deeper in your question, I mean, the basic thesis of the Austrian economic business cycle is the banking system by itself, not the Fed, the banking system creates credit. And this creates uh, a bid on asset prices, which bids them up too high, higher than they would be in, in, in a free market. And in a, in a open market, a competitive market, high prices, single scarcity. That's what's supposed to happen. So entrepreneurs and companies see these high prices, like, oh my God, there's all this scarcity in housing and office buildings and all this stuff. So they run out and start building more of it. That's what you're supposed to do in an open economy, free economy. The problem is that it's not indicative of consumer demand. It's a bank manipulation problem. And so they build these assets no one really wants, and then you go over capacity, and then you crash. And so that that's kind of the story of the last really 100 years, and it's become more intense as we've gotten deeper into it. And that is the, the, the banks fund this bubble, you get over capacity, the malinvestments start to liquidate, and that will blow up the banks. And that's where the Fed comes in. The Fed comes in, and their job is not to blow the bubbles. They don't blow bubbles. They do is they write the checks to the banks to prevent them from collapsing dur during, during the drawdown, dur during the panic phase, right? And then the banks say, oh, my God, look, we've always new reserves. Now, in the, in the 19th century, when reserves were gold, no one could do that. You couldn't print out gold. So the, the system would crash, which was a good thing because you got rid of the speculators, you got rid of the malinvestments. You, you move assets from the irresponsible to the responsible, and then you move forward. Now, we don't have the liquidation process. And so the banks get the free money from the Fed, and they run out and do it again. And that was a story after 2009, right? I mean, we should have had a big liquidation to cleanse the economy. Instead, what did we get? An even bigger bubble. <laughs> and that's where we are now. And so remember, it wasn't the Wuhan virus that did this. It was the repo collapse of September 2019 when the Fed started printing again. And they needed a disease or something to happen. You know, uh, Paul Krugman was, was writing about a fake alien invasion that would necess necessitate big money printing. So everyone knew it had to happen. And so it gave them cover to do that. So what they did was they bailed the banks out. And now, of course, we have an enormous bubble. <laughs> I mean, I don't, my expertise is in gold stocks, not in tech stocks, but I look at just the casual numbers of metrics in, in tech stocks, you know, PE ratios, that sales, revenues to to uh, uh, enterprise value, those sorts of things, they're double what they were in the, in the dot-com bubble. So we know we're in a giant bubble and the Fed knows it, everyone knows it. And the question is, what do they do now? And to your question again, if they do quantitative tightening, which is now the political mandate, I'm sure you saw Biden uh, uh, react to the Fox News reporter when he asked him, is, is, is inflation liability said off mic to call it? You know, no, it's an asset, you, you son of a dumb son of a bitch, right? I mean, of course it's liability. So so the Democrats are in a panic, Biden's in a panic, the Fed's in a panic, right? They've been telling us to only a year ago in the, in the Fed uh, minutes, 
the, the Fed economists were complaining that inflation was too low. Inflation was running 1.7% a year ago. And so they said, oh, my God, we're still too far below our 2% target. You know, how things change. Now, now we're 7.1% and going higher. The Fed's panicking. So, again, your question, the Fed knows stocks overvalued in their semi-annual report to Congress in May. They wrote that stocks were overvalued. And of course, stocks have gone up about 20% since then, even with, with the recent correction. So where that Fed put is, is pretty low. So I think what the Fed wants to do is they want to rein in the market, bring in the high flyers, not create a crash, try to take some pressure off the inflation, thread that needle. I don't think they can do it because the whole nature of a bubble is, as Mises wrote, as Hayek wrote, as, as all the Austrians understand, is it's not just low interest rates. You need continually falling interest rates to keep the bubble from popping, because the whole point is you're funding activities that don't create uh, wealth, that don't create cash flow. They're, they're malinvestments. So, so that, that, that's that, so again, that answers your question. I mean, they're trying to throw that needle between taking the ease off inflation without crashing the markets. But the problem is there's so much margin debt, there's so much debt in the system. Once you get momentum to the downside, it's very hard to stop. And, and my view is that the longer the Fed goes before it reacts to the market falling, and I don't think they will react soon, the, the more effort it will take, the more money printing, the more uh, uh, they'll have to do to save the market uh, on, on the downside. So does this result in stagflation as many are expecting? Well, well, I think that's right. And, and there are other elements to inflation. I mean, one reason we've had no inflation in the last 20 years is, of course, it's China, right? China went from being a dirt poor country where everyone had bicycles and they really had nothing to now a, a, a middle income country, right? By taking all those people from the from the hinterland who are making a dollar a day and putting them in factories, that's great. The problem is, and, and so it it, it, it it drove labor prices lower. That's why there have been no big strikes in, in the Western world for the last 20 years, because they couldn't, because they had no uh, negotiating power. Well, that's changing. Now, China's population is actually shrinking. The one-child policy, which they just turned off, and turns out that they had this momentum. I mean, I think the birth rate in China is about 1.4, far below the 2.1%. You need just for replacement level. So all of a sudden, you know, the, the world who, who imagined that you had billions of Chinese willing to manufacture for almost nothing, well, that's changed all of a sudden. So that's going to create a big inflationary impact. Uh, and then the whole idea of globalism has changed too. I mean, along with China's growth in wealth and power has also grown their political ambitions. And, and that's created all sorts of problems as well. So I think a lot of the drivers of of disinflation have, have gone away. And so we're going to be stuck with high inflation. Uh, and, and you know, what's, what's funny is uh, the, Bernanke wrote a paper uh, in 2018 for the uh, Brookings Institute, where, where he's a, a, a blogger now. And he said, gee, wouldn't it be great if inflation ran at like 5 6%? Because that would give the, the Fed more room to maneuver, right? If you assume the Fed can't below, go below zero, and they can, but they don't want to because it makes it technically complicated. He said, well, if inflation were 5%, then 0% interest rates would be negative 5% and still be nominally not negative. So wouldn't that be great? And even Roe, which is just shows how out of a touch these ivory tower economists are, he said, well, you know, people don't like inflation, but that's because they only look at what they spend. They don't look at their income. And if their income goes up the same amount as they spend, then who really cares? It's just, it's just it's the common people being stupid. And and I mean, again, it's just how, it's how, how removed it is from not just economic theory, but history. I mean, you look at the histories of high inflationary countries, and what happens is the middle class gets wiped out because their costs go up before their income does, right? And all the, all the wealth concentrates in the speculators and, and the business owners and the guys who can amass massive amounts of debt. And again, if you're, if you're a little trader on E-Trade and you've got margin debt, you get cleaned out in a, in, a, uh, in a reaction, right? If you're a giant bank, 
Uh, you don't. The Fed runs to your rescue, so you can lever up as much as you want to. Uh, and and so the institutional players have a huge advantage against the, the mom and pops playing in in, the, in this debt markets. And so that that that's you know that that's the problem is that the Fed. I, I'm not sure they even dislike the inflation. The thinkers. I mean, I think Rogoff wrote. Ten years ago, after the crisis, he said, "Look, all this debt—we have to eat it away by high inflation." Krugman loves the fact we had huge inflation after World War II because they got rid of that debt. So these guys want inflation to get rid of the debt. The problem is that inflation, as we know from the '70s, uh, is is a terrible, terrible thing for the country, for the world, for the middle class, for economic stability, for political stability, for all all these costs that the economists don't see because it doesn't fit in their models, which again are, are models and don't reflect the real world. Dan, in your view, then, uh, see, I've talked to financial historians such as Bob Hoy, and he's expecting deflation in a crash. So, but yeah. in your in your model and what you expect, you're not even entertaining deflation. Am I hearing you no, correctly? No. no well, well, let me clarify. I mean, if you read the history of Weimar Germany, okay, which was like interesting because it's the mother of all hyperinflationary emphasis, there were deflationary panics. Right there, there were times when the banks were all liquidating when things were going bankrupt, and that was the impetus. For the central bank to keep printing, they're not insane. Right? The, 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 the Germans, Haverstein, he wasn't—he wasn't a psychopath. He did it because they were so terrified of what was going to happen if the banks blew up. And the banks, as I said, have all this debt because they know that when they get into trouble, the banks going to bail them out. They—they they know this, and so I, I you know, I, I think I think the path to hyperinflation. Again, I'm not—I'm not saying the U.S. is going to get to like Weimar-style hyperinflation, but certainly very high inflation is punctured by deflationary panics, and and that's what gets the Fed to keep acting. I think the Fed is going to tighten, or, or I mean, you know, try to tighten, or, or talk about tightening, do those things, and and they'll go, they'll go through the motions. They'll keep tightening until a wheel breaks, and that's exactly what happened. And in, uh, in, uh, when when Janet Yellen said that shrinking the balance sheet would be like watching paint dry, and it was true for the first eighteen months. I mean, you know, the, the balance sheet got smaller, and and things were fine until all of a sudden one day they weren't, and that's when the Fed started printing again. So I, I don't, no, I, I absolutely think that we can have deflationary panics, and that's precisely what operates to concentrate wealth. Because again, the small investor who's trying to play this game like the big guys, he's the guy who gets wiped out in the crash. And I'll tell you a quick anecdote, which I, which I love. And that is the 87 crash when they came along and stocks went at 22% on, on, on that crash day, right? And all the retail guys were getting margin calls and cleaned out. Well, well, the, the uh, Baker and Greenspan, the, the Treasury Secretary and, and Greenspan, the, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, called up all the banks and said, hey, look, you better do your patriotic duty and buy stocks and we'll back you up. Okay, So who was buying from all the mom and pops being margin called? Well, Goldman Sachs is buying. Right? And the head trader Goldman Sachs, a guy named Mnuchin, yeah, Steve Mnuchin's father, right, personally made a huge, huge fortune because he got a giant bonus that year because he bought the bottom. So again, that that's that's a mechanism of how wealth goes from the, the mom and pop middle class to the speculator class. And and so no, I absolutely think that that we'll have a deflationary panics, but I don't think we can have persistent deflation because. If they allow that to happen, if they just let the deflationary panic happen, like 2008 style, don't do anything. If first it unravels the banks, right? then it unravels the treasury market, because who's going to buy the treasury bonds that the banks are blowing up? Their function, the reason they have all these uh, a special legalized uh, cartel, banks do, is, is designed to buy bonds. It was set up in the Civil War, the, the National Banking Act, so that the banks could buy the bonds to fight the war. We still have that system today. And then on top of that, 
uh, all the tax revenue disappears because in a crash, people get fired. They don't have capital gains tax, right? So no one, there's no income into the government. All the economic stabilizers happen, unemployment benefits and all these sorts of things. And so all of a sudden you have uh, a total unraveling of the dollar system and they just can't, they're just not going to permit that to the extent they can't, which is why I think the deeper you get into a deflationary panic, the sooner you will see that press release come from the Federal Reserve, which comes every 10 years or so, it says the Federal Reserve stands ready to provide liquidity uh, in, in accordance with its mandate. I mean, it, it, that was the press release in, in, in 87. It was a press release in 2000, 2000, in 2008, in 2020. I mean, th th those are the words you look for. And that's when you know that the call has gone out to the big banks. It's, hey, do your patriotic duty. We have your back. Buy, buy the stocks from, from retail and, and make a big fortune. So our, the solution, the end game to all this, is it going to be a reset of a, the financial system, or is gold going to be revalued to a five-figure number, which you've spoke about, in order to balance the Fed sheet and we can keep our current system? Well, well, well that's exactly right. So I mean, that, that's why I don't really see hyperinflation like Zimbabwe or, or Weimar stock, because there are policy things you can do. For example, I think Cyprus in 2000, I forget, 12, 13 was a test run for that, right? The, the banks were all blown up. And and so in a, in a, in a senior country, you could put them money in Argentina. Instead, they just said, all right, everyone in the bank who has more than $100,000 deposit, guess what? You don't have that anymore. We have it. And, and so you can get you can get rid of the currency that way by bailing people into the system. So that, that that's a policy option. Another policy option, which happened in the 70s was, as, as I've mentioned, is um, if you look at the Fed's balance sheet, the end of the Second World War, uh, it was 84% gold. So when you held a dollar in your hand, you had 84% gold. Another 16% were government bonds of a, you know, fairly solvent government, and not, you know, not as solvent under under FDR as under Hoover. But you know, it, was, it wasn't like a basket case like it is today, right? And, and then the Keynesians started using the Federal Reserve to manage the the business cycle, the economic cycle, and they started buying tons of credit, uh, treasury bonds, such that by 1968, the top of that bubble, the Nifty 50, and all that business. Gold only backed the gold in the Federal Reserve's balance sheet only backed its liabilities by 12 percent, and and in my view, the story of the next 13 years from 68 to, to 1981 to or 98 to 12 years was the price of gold went to a place that balanced the Fed's balance sheet. So by 1980, when gold crossed 650 an ounce. Uh, if you look at the Fed's balance sheet, 100% of its liabilities, like those things called dollars, 100% were backed by gold. So the market put the U.S. back in a gold standard. No one thinks of it that way. It wasn't the wisdom of Congress. The economists did it. It was the market that did it. And so my view is that the way this system fixes itself is a revaluation of gold to make balance sheet and balance. And, and central banks are spooky and mysterious, but at the end of the day, they're a balance sheet and they have to balance and the market will balance them. And I know that the government has the tax authority, they have an army and a military and all that. That's all wonderful. And, and they can use it to great effect to prolong the system. It's what the Mongols did with the with the Chinese paper currency, right? I mean, if you didn't value the Chinese money in the in the 13th century, uh, uh, it's worth in copper, it's a capital offense. Well, guess what? It failed anyway. So at the end of the day, economic law trumps politics. At the end of the day, balance sheets will balance. At the end of the day, that means that the gold on the Fed's balance sheet has to go to a price that makes it balanced. And, and those prices today depends on what you think the backing has to be. Again, the, it, it doesn't have to be 100%. That's the Rothbardian idea. I, I, don't, I don't accept that idea. But 
You look at the Bank of England, for example, for 200 years, it operated one-third backing. That's where the market wanted that number to be. So I think that's a good, a good target for where it should be. And, and the Fed was at that number two for most of its existence. So, I mean, a one-third valuation of gold against the balance sheet implies a gold price of around $11,000 an ounce. And, and that sounds crazy today. I, I, I get that. But again, it's just simply math of looking at, at balance sheets and, and you know, how gold works and the fact that gold's free market money. Once you buy those premises, the conclusion's inevitable. Now, when it happens, I don't know. It's when the market loses confidence in the dollar, and, and that's a tricky thing to time precisely. But you know, gold is insurance. It's not meant to be something that makes you money every day, day in and day out. It's meant to be the thing you hold so that when the system comes to an end, and we can't be far from it now, I think, uh, given the way we're headed and where we are, uh, I, you, you've maintained your wealth. It's like, it's like if you're Argentina, you hold dollars, not pesos. Well, if you're American, you get all the gold and not, and not dollars. Gold may be our insurance policy, but we buy gold stocks for <laughs> stocks for more speculative reasons, don't we? So you're not an expert well, in tech stocks, well, that's right. but gold stocks. <laughs> so talk about your how you're positioning your gold stock fund in 2022, if you could. Yeah, so I mean, you know, you were talking about gold, and gold to me should be a, a primary core asset. And as you say, gold stocks are the kind of extra kicker you, you put on to, to get some more leverage to the story. And and to me, you know, the way I think about gold stocks again is not through the lens of the price of gold. What I care about is the input cost versus the output revenue, right? So gold stock to me is a spread trade. Your input costs are steel, oil, rubber, right? heavy labor, all that stuff, and your output gold. So what you look at is the gold to commodity ratio. And, and, and if we had time, I could go into exactly why, but I'll just tell you the way it works is when credit levels are rising, uh, gold sinks against industrial commodities. So your margins fall, which means that because bubbles grow solely over time, it's a terrible place to be for most of the time. And then you get these moments of credit revulsion when commodities collapse against gold and margins explode, like the 1930s, like the, the 1970s, like 2008 to 2011, like 2020, right? When credit goes down, that margin blows out. And that's where you want to be. And the way I play it is I like to be in the marginal, not crappy, but marginal, uh, uh, gold deposits that have a lot of operational leverage. What's nice about those companies is no one will give them financial leverage. So it's really hard to get into financial distress um, because it's basically a perpetual option. Now you have decay like an option. They they go to market and, and raise money and then you, you know your equity gets diluted and that's that's the decay you deal with with any option that you buy. But it doesn't expire and and it's pretty immune to volatility. Because, uh, you know, especially a development company, you just stop developing. Like in 2015, you just stop drilling holes and you can hang out. Your, your equity price might get crushed temporarily. But in 2016, when gold came back, all the prices came back because you know, the market revalued those things. So, so what I try to do is find companies that are resilient in terms of their balance sheets for lower gold prices. So I can don't get knocked off the game if, 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 you know, if I get the timing wrong, if gold has a correction, but that have a lot of operation leverage to gold so that when credit levels fall and gold goes through the roof, not just in normal terms, but in terms of commodities, that, that these things will, will, will blow out. And so that, that's, that's always how I'm trying to position myself. And I'm always looking for companies that are in that sweet spot of having financial resilience and operational leverage to the upside. So some advise always buy gold producers that are in the top quartile of uh, production costs or lowest quartile, excuse me, of production costs. So you're saying that's not your approach, right? That, that's not my approach. I mean, again, uh, I, I, I think it's important if you plan the strategies I do that, that you 
right size your possession, right? I mean, you don't overbuy fire insurance on your house, right? Because you don't want your house to burn down. But if it does, you want to make sure that you can build a new, buy a new house. And and so it's important not to get overweighted because when you buy the top quartile cost producers, then then you obviously have more volatility. So you need to be have some some ballast in either physical gold or cash or something else to to maintain that. But it's not just about cost. I mean. Again, if you just say, "Well, I'll buy the high-cost producers," well, again, are they no good? Are they going to cost you a higher? Do they have debt? Uh, if gold corrects, you can be taken out because all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the mine fails. I mean, it's again, you've got to look at financial resilience as well. So, for producers, I want to see no debt or debt that's due a long way out, so they're not going to have to refinance in the middle of a financial panic and taken off the board. Um, I, I gravitate more towards uh, development companies that are maybe financing production, so. So they, they've already taken that, that capital. Does cost away. overrun in, in the inflationary environment scare you a little, though? Uh, absolutely. And you've got, to, you've got to be aware of that. And again, I mean, look for companies that have locked in their costs, for, for example, or, or, or maybe just took the hit, right, and, and revived and the stock is whacked. And maybe that's a good time to come in because they've already, they've already absorbed that problem. Again, I mean, what, what's, what's happened in, in the market, I think people are somewhat myopic in the market, is that Gold two and a half years ago was low, was 1350, right? And so gold had this huge surge, and commodities really didn't. I mean, they didn't go up that much. And so we had this time of, of, of the, the sweet spot for gold producers and, and, and you know, all the whole gold complex when, when the gold goes up and commodity plus don't. Now, now costs are catching up. And so we're seeing margin compression. And if you just look at last year, 18 months, it's a horrible story because all you see is a compression. But you got to look back. To the, the whole cycle, right? And I think where we're headed is, and the market seems to be suggesting this, that we're heading towards the next financial problem, right? The Fed's going to tighten. The market's incredibly weak, the, the, the general market, right? High yield bond market apparently is shut down, right? And as the market's already projecting Fed cuts like 18 months out already. I mean, it's just, and I think that's probably too far out. So I, I think we're probably near to the point where commodities, where gold will have the next big step higher. And commodities don't. Now they'll catch up eventually for sure, but there'll be a window again when margins blow out, when those cost overruns aren't a problem because whatever the cost of being in mind is gold going up so much you don't care anymore. And and I think that's again, you've got to invest for what's happening, not where we are now. I think that that's where we're headed. Dan, if you think gold's gonna go up at least fivefold from here, do you have already planned your exit strategy for your gold positions? Well, that that, that that's a great question. And 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 let me let me clarify too. I mean, we're in the cycle of of deflationary panic, Fed printing, gold goes up, and then things are fine, the deflation. The the, the $10,000 gold call, that's a different thing. That's when the market basically stays to run the Federal Reserve. But again, back in the 19th century, really before the 1930s, you could go to a European central bank and the Fed and say, here's my paper money, give me gold. And you could actually have a run on the central bank. Now, you can't do it anymore, but you can take your dollars to a coin shop and say, okay, here's my dollars, give me gold. So again, the gold price is now how you run the Federal Reserve. So that, that $10,000 figure is not, we're not going to get there to sort of normal charts and sort of thing. That'll be the panic moment when the whole thing unravels. And and so, I mean, I, you know, th- that will come when I'm not exactly sure, but I, I'm not positioned just for that because that, that could be a, a while off. But I do think that we're nearing a point where we're going to have, again, because of Fed tightening that hasn't even come yet. I mean, they're still printing the money. It's incredible. These the cycles are getting compressed and compressed and compressed, right? But we're going to have a moment where there's, there's the panic 
at the Fed and they're going to do something. Uh, you know, it, it may not be QE. It may be that, you know, BlackRock calls up and says, oh, my God, you know, we, we got ropes upside down on some Treasury arbitrage trade, which is what the you know, long term capital management was. And also what September to, uh, uh, 2019 was. Right. It, it was hedge funds that were blowing up in some Treasury trades. So I, it's hard to know exactly what what's going to trigger this thing. But but no, I mean, you, you have to be prepared for these different outcomes and, and also the outcome where. Gold takes a vacation for six months. I mean, that that's always has to be in the back of your mind. And are you levered up on silver too? Last question. Uh, do you view silver as a leveraged option on gold? I mean, sort of. And 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 let me, uh, I mean, that, that that's a longer conversation, but but uh, silver is tricky. I mean, gold is just money, basically. Silver has an industrial component. The other thing about silver is if if you go back in economic history, um, gold and silver had different roles, monetary roles. Uh, uh, gold w- was very very valuable, and so you wouldn't go to the you know grocery store or the market to butt with your gold because because you couldn't. I mean, the change would be just overwhelming, and, and it's hard to trick you to buy grains of gold. So gold was used to ransom back your king and buy your ship and, and and that kind of thing. Real estate transactions. Silver was used for transactions and goods, right? Because it was much less valuable. You could go to the market and you could buy stuff, and the change wasn't going to overwhelm you. You might get it in copper or something like that, right? And so they had two different roles: capital versus Versus, versus goods. And what, what sort of ended that naturally was when printing technology uh, reached a stage in the, in the mid-19th century when you could have credible paper claims on gold. Well, then you really could divide gold in very, very small amounts. And so silver's role as money kind of went away because you didn't need silver as a monetary medium anymore because you could use uh, the claims on gold. And again, in the 19th century, they were actually credible. I mean, governments and banks would actually give you the gold uh, when, when you demanded it. And because of that reason, during the deflationary panic of the 30s, uh, uh, gold did very well. I mean, it was revalued higher, but but again, things went down 90% against gold. So its relative value increased about 10 to, tenfold. Silver didn't. Silver got crushed. Um, whereas in the 70s, when the dollar itself stopped being a good monetary medium, then silver went crazy, right? And so the inflationary panic, silver went way, way higher than gold did. Uh, because again, uh, I mean, from what I understand from crusty old coin dealers I've talked to in New York City, uh, cab drivers and laundromat people would show up at the end of their shift and, and, and literally convert their dollars into silver because they didn't want to hold dollars overnight. And so I think a high inflationary panic, silver is going to do very, very well. Uh, and, and so I, I, I do have silver exposure, but it's not as sure as gold because if it's a deflationary credit collapse and silver won't do well. And also, you, it's, it's, it's very volatile and you have an industrial component as well that, that, that jerks it around. I think, I think what will happen eventually and what we'll get to is most silver, as I'm sure you know and your listeners know, uh, doesn't come from primary silver producers. It comes from byproducts at base metal mines. And I think when we really get into a global credit collapse and, and the Chinese manic building phase goes away, right? We discover we have way too much infrastructure than we need. The, the bid on industrial commodities will, will, will be very much reduced. And, and that will impact base metal producers and therefore the supply of silver into the market. And, and that will that's what will send silver to the moon because silver's industrial uses Again, as your listeners probably know, uh, is very inelastic. Like your two thousand dollar Apple laptop might have ten dollars of silver in it. They don't really care if it goes to fifteen or twenty. It doesn't really change the the, the metric of of the product. And so, uh, and, and so, at some point, I think silver will have a, a a zoom higher. When that happens, I don't I don't really know, but I do have exposure to it for, because it is a monetary metal, and I think it will do very well. And if there's listeners that want to follow up with your work, uh, where's the best place to do that on the internet? 
You know, Mermicon.com, my, my website has all my letters in it and uh, a recommended reading list, some in the order of, of, of how I discovered it and how important I think it is to the, to the overall thesis. But but again, I'll reiterate what I said at the beginning, which is that no one else is looking out for you. <laughs> you know, your stockbroker wants you to buy stocks. Uh, your tax collector wants your money. I mean, it, it you know, every, the, your, your professors at the university are all compromised with, you know, with politics and, and, and their careers. I mean, if you want to figure this stuff out, you got to do it on your own. And, and, uh, and, and what's great of the internet is that more and more people can do that through shows like yours, through, through books online, through resource, the Mises.org places and places like that. So, so take advantage of those things. I think we're heading towards a, generational break, which happens basically once every three generations, once a lifetime, you get a big giant dislocation in society and that's where we're headed. And, and, you know, if you want to try to preserve what you have through that time frame, it's important to know how the world works and how money works and how to protect what you have. Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing your insights on today's show, Dan. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me again. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.